Uh, Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 12. Uh, Please give your attention as I read verses 1 through 6. And there appeared a great wonder or sign in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder or sign in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads, And his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there. A thousand two hundred and three score days, or one thousand two hundred and sixty days. By the way, I'm using my, my this is my dad's Bible, so it's you could, it's all beat up and everything. But uh, he was a King James guy, so that's what you're getting tonight. But uh, anyway, so Revelation chapter twelve, the first six verses there. So last time we looked at Revelation, which would have been by my math. Um, two weeks ago, two weeks ago, two weeks ago, we looked at the seventh trumpet, the finishing off chapter 11 and the first half of the book of Revelation. And in those verses, 15 through 19, uh, also marked the completion of the trumpet cycle, that second cycle of visions that we see starting in chapter 4 and going all the way through chapter 22, basically the end of the book. And the seventh trumpet, like the seventh seal, marks the end of redemptive history. So remember, we're looking at these cycles, not as continuous successive events, but as sort of a broad-reaching scope looking at this period of redemptive history that we're calling the church age, the age between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the return of Jesus Christ, and it's looking at it from different perspectives. So we, the seals look at that period. The trumpets look at that period. And with the seventh trumpet marks the end of redemptive history and the consummation of the kingdom of God. And we see that in verse 15 of chapter 11 where we see, And the seventh angels sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. That marks the end of redemptive history as the kingdoms that have been in rebellion for this entire period of time against the Lord and against His anointed have been subdued and now Jesus Christ reigns. He is the King and will reign forever and ever. And just as we saw in Psalm 2, we looked at Psalm 2, we're going to look at it again tonight, but Psalm 2, that messianic psalm that talks about how the Lord's anointed has been set by God to be ruler, how the nations rage against God and how God laughs at them in derision, and then the, the, the Son whom He has begotten will rule over them with a rod of iron. And the end of redemptive history is achieved when the kingdoms of this world have indeed become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His anointed, His, His Messiah, His Christ. And then the rest of the passage from verses 16 through 18 show the praise that breaks forth because of this. Because now the kingdoms have become the kingdoms of God, praise breaks forth in heaven. The 24 elders, the angelic host, they worship God, they give thanks to God for His mighty deeds. And then at the end, we see the temple of God open up in heaven. The heavenly temples open up and then we get a glimpse of the ark there in heaven. So as with the first cycle, the seven seals, the second cycle ends with the return of Jesus and the consummation of the eternal kingdom of God. Now, we don't see the, you know, Jesus returning actually at the end of this. It's assumed. Again, we'll see that later on. Uh, we'll see that at the end of the third cycle, Jesus will return. We'll see that in chapter 19 when he returns on the, on the white horse and slays the enemies of God with the word of his mouth. 
but that just kind of recaps where we are, where, uh, where we are, where we were two weeks ago, and where we're going to be starting now. So that second cycle is done. Now, before we get into our text tonight, because what we're looking at here in chapters 12, 13, and 14, it's going to be a little different than what we saw in the first and the second cycle. Again, it's going to be a little different than the seals. It's going to be a little different than the trumpets. So before we get into this, I think it might be helpful just to kind of consider history. Okay, to consider history. In fact, the scope of redemptive history. Now, when you studied history in high school, how many people actually studied history? I mean, were were you there in history or did you actually study history in high school? Okay, when I studied history in high school, we were forced to sort of memorize dates and names and places, battles and great events that happened in history. And that's how you were tested. What happened on this date in whatever year? And then you're supposed to write that down. And that's how we mark history, right? We mark history in our world by the rise of nations, the fall of nations, by these great events that happen in history. If you study the history just of our own country, you will learn the people and events that led up to the War of Independence, why that happened, and when that happened in 1776. You will learn about the people and events that lead up to the Civil War, why that happened, who was important, and the important dates around that as well. When you get to the 20th century, you see the the great events of the 20th century, the the tail end of the Industrial Revolution, the start of World War I, the Great Depression, the start of World War II, the Civil Rights Movement, and so on and so forth. Now, when you study redemptive history, it's different. You're not so much concerned with dates and and places and names and, and so on as you are with the big sort of big picture events that sort of uh, have eternal consequences in the world. And what the unbelieving world will scoff at as fable or myth has much more importance than the rise and fall of world empires. And the reason being is that in redemptive history, the rise and fall of world empires is really the working out of a greater, more cosmic struggle taking place behind the scenes. And I get this fly here kind of buzzing the tower. It's really annoying me. So if I'm swatting at nothing, there's a bug here. So, so anyway, we are not so much concerned with the rise and fall of empires as we are with what's going on behind the scenes of all of these empires coming and going. So if I had to break down redemptive history, I would do so probably in four broad categories. And the four categories are creation, which you see in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God creates the world. He creates the world. He creates everything in the world. He creates people to populate the world and to care for the world, and so on and so forth. But then that ends, that part of redemptive history ends pretty quickly because what happens in Genesis chapter 3? Yeah, you get the fall. Man sins. So you get the fall in Genesis chapter 3. That's the next big movement in redemptive history. And then after that, that's only one chapter, then you get redemption. So you got creation, fall, and then redemption. So after man falls, God's plan for redemption kicks in. And from Genesis chapter 4 all the way over to Revelation chapter 20, This big chunk of the Bible takes place and covers the story of redemption. So if you were just to kind of look at your Bible, right? So this part would be creation and fall. This part would be sort of redemption, okay? A lot more in the redemption category than there is in the creation and the fall category. And then at the very end, you have consummation. That's Revelation chapters 21 and 22. So those four big movements in redemptive history, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Now, like I mentioned, uh, you may have noticed too that redemption is the largest section of Scripture. And that's because the Bible is a story of redemptive history. The Bible tells the story of how God redeems His people from their sins, how man fell into sin, 
how man, how God redeems man from his sin, and then how God then ushers the redeemed humanity into a new heavens and a new earth. So then as we look at the rest of that Bible, the big chunk there in the middle, Genesis 4 to Revelation 20, you've got the entire Old Testament. So the you know, 39 or 38 and a half books of the Old Testament that prepare the way for the Messiah, the one who will redeem his people. All right, so all of the Old Testament is preparation for Messiah. It points forward to Messiah. It pictures the Messiah. It prepares the way for the Messiah to come onto the scene. Then you break into the New Testament, you get the four Gospels, which talk about the life and death and resurrection of the Messiah, what he did in this world, what the works that he did, and how he redeemed his people by dying on the cross. Then you get the book of Acts, which tells the story of how the kingdom now goes forth. The Messiah brings in the kingdom, right? What is, what is the, fir- the first words out of Jesus' mouth when he preaches in Matthew 4 is, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And now the kingdom is, is at hand. It starts to grow in the book of Acts as it starts off real small in Jerusalem and then grows and grows and grows. And by the end of 30 years, you've got the church spread out through the entire Roman Empire. It's covered almost the entire known world at that time in 30 years. So the kingdom of Messiah goes forth into the world, bringing people into the kingdom. As the gospel goes forth, it changes hard hearts into believing hearts. It softens the heart and brings people who have been regenerated by the Spirit into the kingdom. And then the rest of the New Testament, the letters all explain the relevance of all that. It explains why this gospel message matters. It explains why this Jesus person matters. It it applies that life, death, and resurrection into our lives and how now we are to live as citizens of this new kingdom. And then finally, when you get to the book of Revelation, it gives us a picture of how redemptive history ends. And I'll, you know, just to, you know, to be a spoiler alert here, it ends with our victory. <laughs> Jesus wins, right? The old story of, of, uh, of uh, seminary students who are, you know, after a game of basketball, they, they go into the, to the locker room and there's a janitor there and he's reading his Bible and he's reading the book of Revelation. And these seminary students who think they know everything, they go up to the janitor and they ask him, they say, do you understand what you're reading? And the janitor looks at the students and says, of course I understand what I'm reading. He says, well, then tell us, what does Revelation mean? He says, well, it means that we win. <laughs> Jesus wins, and we win because Jesus wins. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's basically the truth, right? That's what Revelation is. It's how we win, how Jesus wins, and how that victory has been working its way through all of redemptive history. Now, through this story of redemptive history, what we see are two parallel histories unfolding okay two parallel histories unfolding look uh, keep your finger here and go all the way back to the beginning in genesis 3 now again genesis 3 is what the fall okay just making sure testing you guys passed okay genesis 3 is the fall You see the serpent come in. He's the craftiest and most subtle of all the beasts of the field. And he goes up and he tempts Eve, who's sitting there in the garden. Uh, Adam is presumably somewhere nearby because she doesn't go very far to give him the fruit after she eats of it. So Adam is somewhere nearby, not sure what he's doing, counting leaves on a tree or something. But anyway, the serpent comes up to Eve and attacks Eve. And he begins by saying, hath God said. So immediately, the first line of attack of the serpent is to cause her to begin to doubt God's word, right? And you know how the story goes, and he says, oh, you're not going to die. God doesn't want you to eat the fruit because he knows when you eat it, you're going to be like him. And Eve is like, yeah, yeah, God is holding back something from me. So she eats and gives to her husband, like I said, who's presumably nearby and gives it to him to eat. And then it says the eyes of both of them were opened. But they didn't become like God. What they did was they began to know that their, they were own, their own sin. They, they saw that they were naked and they felt shame. 
And then God comes, and of course, then they hide, which is kind of a silly thing to do when you're when God is there, right? You know, where are you, Adam? It's like I'm not here. You know, I'm not sure what you know what he thought he could do to hide from God, but there he is. He's hiding, and that's what happens when we sin, right? We think we can hide from God, that we can sort of in shame hide from God. So God's walking there in the cool of the night, and he sees him. And when he says, "Where are you, Adam?" He's not looking where he is. He's asking, "Where are you? Where's your heart, Adam? Where, what have you done?" And of course, then they start the finger pointing, right? The woman you gave me, and then the woman says, the serpent you put in the garden, so on and so forth. And then God begins to curse them when he says in chapter 3, verse 14, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of the And then verse 15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It, that is her seed, shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And there, not only do you have the first promise of the Gospel, but there you have these two great storylines that weave their way through all of redemptive history. The line of the woman, the seed of the woman, and the line of the serpent, the seed of the serpent. And it's a battle between these two opposing lines throughout all of the Bible. This great cosmic battle. So these two threads run throughout all of redemptive history. And that's what we're going to see here as we go back now to Revelation chapter 12. We're going to see these histories play themselves out in a sort of a visionary way, but also kind of borrowing language from the mythology that would have been prevalent in those days. So now as we head into our passage this evening, Revelation chapter 12, verses 1-6, through 6, this next cycle, this third cycle into which we're going, is going to view the entire scope of redemptive history through the lens of these symbolic figures that we're going to see. The woman, the dragon, the child, and then eventually you're going to see in chapter 13, the beast, the false prophet, you're going to see the 144,000 again uh, pop up. All of these people are figures that show this scope of this cosmic battle going throughout all of redemptive history. And unlike the previous two cycles, the cycles of the seals and the cycles of the trumpets, which show us, uh, show us God's judgment This cycle here, this third one, gives us a sort of a behind-the-scenes glimpse of the great cosmic struggle that is waged ever since Genesis 3.15. Now what we're going to see in this section is sort of that great cosmic struggle from a sort of an earthly perspective. What you're going to see next time, Lord willing, when we look at the rest of chapter 12, is that struggle from a more heavenly perspective as the, the, you're going to see this great uh, battle, of you know, this war in heaven between the angels, and that sort of has ramifications on the earth. But we begin here by looking at this passage here, verses 1-6, through six, as we see the woman, the dragon, and the child. Alright, so let's look first now at the woman. Now, if you remember last time, I said, you know, I kind of joked and said, you know, is this really so hard to interpret? Who's the woman? Who does the woman sound like when I read the passage? What's that? Israel. Israel. Who's the, the child? Jesus. Who's the dragon? Satan. Satan. Right, okay. See, okay, we can just quit now. <laughs> Go back and watch Sunday Night Football. <laughs> I'm joking. You're, don't leave. <laughs> Aaron locked the door. Um, No, so our passage here begins with John seeing a great sign appearing in heaven, verse 1. And there appeared a great sign or a great wonder in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Now, a lot of times when John changes visions, he'll say something like this. After this I saw, or now I saw. But we don't typically, we don't really have that 
kind of language here. Uh, but it's clear from the content of what we see here in these six verses that we do have a change of scene. So what ended the last cycle with heaven opening up, the temple of heaven being exposed, and the ark of the covenant in heaven being seen, John then says, and then there appeared in heaven this great sign. So after the scene with the seventh trumpet, the opening of the heavenly temple, John sees another great sign. And this great sign is a woman here clothed with the sun. That is the sun, the big ball of fire in the sky. The moon under her feet and on her head a garland or a crown, uh, 12 crowns. Now we kind of answered this question, but the first question that would pop into mind is who is this woman? Now we said Israel, right? And that's what our dispensational brothers and sisters would say. This is Israel. The woman is Israel. Now, I think that's mostly true. But some want to say that this is the Virgin Mary because the woman gives birth to Jesus, right? Who gives birth to Jesus in the Scriptures? Mary. Okay, so some will say that this is Mary. Some may even say that this is Eve, right? Because remember, we looked all the way back at Genesis 3. It was the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Well, who is you know, the seed of the woman? Who's the woman? Eve, right? Who's the seed? Jesus. So she's like the ultimate mother or great, 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 you know, go back however many greats. I, I don't know how many greats, but a lot of greats. Grandmother, okay? But... Identifying the woman as Israel, I think, is mostly right. Because consider the imagery here that we see here of she is clothed with the sun and the moon and the stars. And this is reminiscent of Joseph's dream. If you remember uh, Joseph, the dreamer, right, when he is uh, introduced in Genesis 37, Joseph has a dream. And of course, he goes around it's like, going to his brothers and saying, I have a dream. Not like a Martin Luther King, I have a dream, but more of like a na 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 I have a dream and you don't. And guess what my dream says here. But in Genesis 39, Joseph, the dreamer, has a dream. And in verse 7 of chapter 39, um, sorry, verse 9 of 37, I can't read my own notes. Verse 9 of 37, Joseph has a dream. And he says, And I dreamed yet another dream, and he told it to his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. So he has a dream in which the sun and the moon and the and eleven stars are bowing down before him. Now, it's not too hard to interpret this, because later on when he tells it to his father, he's like, Do you think... Me and your mother and your brothers are going to bow to you. So the sun is Jacob, the moon is Rachel, and the eleven stars are his eleven brothers. So this, this imagery does kind of call into mind that the woman would be Israel. But I think it's best to see the woman not just as Israel, but as the people of God in general. The people of God in general, which would include Israel in the Old Testament, but would also include the church, because what we're going to see in next, uh, next time, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. So, I mean, here we see these people who bear witness to Christ, the, that would be the church. So I think it's best to see the woman here as the people of God as a whole, as comprised of a whole. So this would, of course, include Israel in the Old Testament, but expanded to include the Gentiles in the New Testament, so it's probably just best to see the woman as the church because we believe that the church includes all who have believed in the Gospel, Old Testament and New Testament. And Israel is often seen here, the woman, the people of God, is often seen as the betrothed of God, as, as the wife of God, or as the, the one who is beloved of God. We see this in Isaiah chapter 54, in Isaiah chapter 54, verses 5 through 7, where the prophet says, For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, 
the God of the whole earth shall he be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth when thou wast refused, saith thy God. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. So there we see the woman, a woman, Israel, the people of God, as God's betrothed, as God's wife in a sense. We see this also in the prophet Hosea. And that, that's a great book to consider because in Hosea, the prophet himself is called to sort of be God in a little morality play, right? Hosea is told to marry a woman of questionable morals, and that woman is an adulteress, and then that is a sort of a life lesson that God says, just as Israel has been an adulterous wife to me, so has Hosea's wife been an adulterous wife to her, to him, I should say. But in Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, this is God now speaking again through the prophet Hosea, and I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. So even with all of their spiritual adultery, with all of their idolatry, with all of their apostasy, God, who has made an everlasting covenant with his people, still says, I will betroth you to me. You will still be my wife. So Israel, or the people of God, is often seen in the Old Testament as the betrothed of God. And we know that's also true of the church, right? The church is the bride of Christ. So all of this imagery here, the woman is the, you know, represents the people of God as a whole. So the seed of the woman that was promised in Genesis 3.15 was born along through Israel until the fullness of time had come. And that's what we see here in verse 2 of chapter 12. So this woman who is crowned with the sun and has the moon under her feet and has 12 stars on her head. Now we see in verse 2, And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. So this woman, the betrothed of God, is found to be with child, and she is about now to give birth. Now, taken from the perspective of redemptive history, that is basically everything we see in the Old Testament, right? The people of God, you know, as the Messiah, the seed of the Messiah is carried along until finally, at the end of the Old Testament, when we get into the Gospels, the Messiah comes. So this woman here is carrying this child. She has been carrying this child for, for thousands of years. Imagine, women, if you had to carry a child <laughs> for thousands of years, you'd be just like, will this child ever come? <laughs> You're like, just get it out of me. I think this is a long pregnancy. Yes, from the perspective of redemptive history, that is, it is a very long pregnancy. But again, everything in the Old Testament, it was about preparing the way for Messiah. So Israel, again, has been carrying this child for thousands of years, and now the time for the child to come is, is at hand. And again, think of all the travails, right? It says that she, tra- she was travailing in birth. Think of all the travails that Israel has gone through. All of the messianic hope that Israel has had in their own history. All of it finally leading up to this point where the woman is about to give birth to her child. So here is the woman, the people of God. She's caring for the Messiah. The seed of the woman has been carried along throughout all the pages of the Old Testament and now is finally ready to be born. But there's a problem. There's a small problem here in paradise, and that is we have a dragon. Houston, there is a problem, and we have this dragon here in verses 3 and 4. Look at verse 3. So John sees the first wonder, this woman who is travailing in childbirth. Now he sees another wonder. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. I don't know about you, but if I saw a big giant dragon with seven heads <laughs> and ten horns with crowns on his heads, I think that would be a pretty terrifying sight to behold. I don't know 
what you think, to me, that's, that's pretty scary, right? I think of all those old, um, you know, like, what is it, uh, Sinbad and the Seven Voyages or whatever, you know, they fight the Hydra, this giant reptile with the multiple heads and all this stuff. Pretty scary thing. So we see this dragon, and it's introduced similar to the woman in verse 1. Another sign, a great wonder appears in heaven. But instead of a woman clothed with the sun, we see this hideous, fiery red dragon. And this dragon has seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns. What what does this all mean? Well, there are various ways to interpret what John sees here when he sees this great dragon. Uh, Dennis Johnson, who wrote uh, a great commentary on Revelation called The Triumph of the Lamb, explains the vision in this way. He says, The dragon is shown in symbols signaling his cunning, seven heads, his great power, ten horns, and authority to influence others, seven diadems or seven crowns. So this beast, this dragon, has, has great cunning. He's got great power. The horn is a symbol of power. And he's got authority. That's what the crowns represent. Crowns represent authority to rule or influence. Another way to see this dragon is having vast control over worldly systems and kingdoms. The multiple heads with crowns hints at the fact that the dragon is behind much of the world governments that we see. In fact, consider how the beast just... You know, peek over at chapter 13, verse 1. Look at how the beast himself is described. So John here is standing upon the sand of the sea and he sees a beast rise up out of the sea. Now, again, the sea, if you're thinking from a Jewish perspective, the sea is where everything bad happens. Nothing good happens in the sea. That's what happens when you have a fairly landlocked country that does not have much in the way of maritime, uh, you know, industry or anything like that. So the sea is where everything bad happens. So this great beast rises up out of the sea, and what does this beast look like? Well, how many heads does he have? Seven. How many horns does he have? Ten. How many crowns? He's got crowns on every horn. He looks an awful lot like the dragon, right? So this beast is empowered by the dragon. Clearly, the beast is working under the influence and power of the dragon. Now, again, I would say you can turn to Daniel 7. Because a lot of what we see here with the beast and with the dragon resembles what we see in Daniel chapter 7. Because that's how the prophet Daniel describes the successive kingdoms that will emerge in world history. So Daniel himself is given a vision of kingdoms that will come after the time that he is in. Now again, remember, Daniel is in uh, the kingdom of Babylon. He's working for Nebuchadnezzar. And so he is there at the beginning of the Babylonian Empire. And he's, getting, he's gotten these visions of these successive kingdoms that will come after. So in the first one he sees is a vision of like a lion in verse 4 of chapter 7 with eagle's wings. Uh, And then in in verse 5, he sees the Medo-Persian Empire, another beast, a second like a bear, raised up itself on one side and had three ribs in its mouth and between its teeth. Uh, And they said, Arise, devour much flesh. Then in verse 6, he sees the third beast, the third world empire, which is the the Macedonian or the Greek empire from Alexander the Great. So another one, another beast like a leopard. Remember Alexander? He conquered most of the known world in a very swift amount of time. Uh, He only lived until he was like 33, I think. And he conquered most of the known world. So the leopard, the leopard is a very fast animal. So he conquers, so he's the third beast. And then after that, verse 7, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. So this <coughs> fourth beast comes and just kind of stomps all over the, the kingdoms of the other three beasts. And he just the Roman Empire just kind of sweeps through with this great conquering power before. And we see here at the end, it was diverse from all the beasts that were before, and it had ten horns. 
Okay, again, the dragon has seven heads, ten horns. And then in verse 8, verse 8 says, And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them a little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So this great, ugly, hideous beast with horns all over the place represents the Roman Empire. And these are the kings. These horns are then represent ten kings that, are, you know, that, the, that the Roman Empire sort of conquered and, and have taken over. In other words, this evil dragon that we see now in Revelation 12 is the lying, murderous power behind many kingdoms throughout all of world history. Satan, the dragon, the serpent of old is the one who is behind all of this. And we know this because if you peek ahead, you can go back to Revelation 12. If you peek ahead to verse 9, we see here this great red dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. So this is who the dragon is. He is Satan. He is, I know this is a big shocker, right? Because we kind of already guessed that this was Satan in the first place. But just in case you were doubting, the Bible itself tells you that this great dragon is that old serpent all the way back in Genesis. He is the great dragon, the lying, murderous beast, Satan. And this dragon, Satan, hates God, right? If you remember in Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 14, when the prophet is giving a lament over Babylon, he talks about Lucifer, the morning star, and how Lucifer... Um, stood on the mountain of God and he said, I will, I will. You know, he wanted to usurp God's power. So this great dragon hates God, hates the people of God, and that we see that in verse 4. So in verse 4, this great dragon with seven heads and ten horns, his tail sweeps through and draws down a third part of the stars of heaven and casts them on the earth. And now this woman who's about to give birth, the dragon is just standing there. Right, ready for when the child comes out so he can devour the child. So he's just waiting, waiting for that child to come out. It's like, okay, I've got you now. You're in a very vulnerable position. When that child pops out, I'm going to just sweep over and I'm going to eat that child up. Now, the first half of this verse here, verse 4, where he says, the tail drew a third part of the stars out of heaven and cast them on the earth. How have you understood that verse to be interpreted in the past? Well, we, okay, so we, we know that there's an innumerable host of angels, right? But we've also, you may have heard this, how many, how many angels does Satan control? How many demons does he control? Have you ever heard that he controls about a third of the fallen, the fallen angels, about a third of the angels have fallen and they're under Satan's control? So this verse has been interpreted typically as the great angelic revolt. So Satan revolts. And his tail sweeps together one-third of the stars. Stars sometimes are referred to as angels in the Bible. So he gets this great satanic revolt, which results in one-third of the angels rebelling with him, and they eventually become the fallen angels or the demons. That's how typically I've heard this verse interpreted, and how where you get this idea of where's this demonic host. And I don't know if that's necessarily wrong, but I think if you understand this verse, if you try to interpret this verse alongside of what we see in Daniel 8, I know we're going back and forth, but it's, it's good to do it. Again, remember what we said at the very beginning, the key to interpreting Revelation is not the newspaper, but the Old Testament, right? So in Daniel chapter 8, verses 9 through 12. Now this is a different vision Daniel has. Basically, uh, this vision is you get a, you know, the ram and, and the goat vision. And it's understood, and it's not understood because I'm guessing, because the, an angel describes what's going on here. Later, he interprets the vision. But it's basically it's what happens with the, the Greek Empire tackling and defeating the Medo-Persian Empire, and then the Greek Empire breaking off into four different sub-kingdoms, and then one of those kingdoms becomes great. And that's what we see here in verse 9 of chapter 8. 
So, you know, there's this ram with two horns. That's the Medo-Persian Empire. Then you see this goat with this great horn. That's Alexander the Great. And in verse 9, out of one of them, so this is after um, the, the, the goat's kingdom waxes and he's, it's broken into four. One of them came forth, a little horn, which waxed or grew strong, grew exceeding strong and great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land, that is Israel. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. So here, this great horn of this goat sweeps some stars down and casts them upon the earth and tramples upon them. Verse 11, Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and, uh, and prospered. You're like, what in the world is going on here? Well, again, you remember the Greek Empire came and conquered the Medo-Persian Empire, and then it, when Alexander died, it was split into four kingdoms. One of those kingdoms... Out of one of those kingdoms came a figure named Antiochus Epiphanes. Anybody heard of him? Antiochus Epiphanes? So he was one of the kings of the Seleucid Empire, one of those Greek kingdoms. And he is the person who sort of desecrates the temple. So this is all happening between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. This is what we call that intertestamental period. So Antiochus Epiphanes, he's an actual historical figure, he raised himself up in Jerusalem and he desecrates the temple. He desecrates the temple so that sacrifices stop there. That's what we see here. No more sacrifices are practiced in the temple. And he persecuted. He hated the Jews. He desecrates their temple and he, and he persecutes the Jewish people greatly. So I think when we see here the tail of the dragon sweeping down the stars from the heavens, I think what we see here is sort of a picture of what happened with Antiochus Epiphanes. The dragon using his tail to draw stars out of heaven and fling them to the earth suggests that what happens in heaven happens on earth as well. Right? That's what, that's what I'm trying to argue here is that everything you see in world history has sort of a parallel in the spiritual realm. And we're going to see that again next time as this great war in heaven has ramifications on the earth. So again, this dragon seeking to persecute and stamp out God's people causes great persecution among them. This figure, Antiochus Epiphanes, comes in, desecrates the temple, and, and persecutes the Jewish people, which eventually ends up with the Jewish people revolting. Right? You get the Maccabean revolt, and that's where you get the holiday of Hanukkah and all those other things that go on. But it's interesting, too, because in the Gospels, when Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation in the temple, he is referring back to that past figure, Antiochus Epiphanes, who desecrated the temple. All right, back to Revelation 12. So we mentioned before how redemptive history is sort of tracing out this conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And consider now how the dragon here has tried to end the godly line. So remember, you know, the woman is the people of God and how she is bringing forth uh, this child and how the dragon has been warring against the people of God from all time. Consider how that has happened in the history of the Old Testament, right? What is the first thing after the fall? What is the first thing you see in Genesis chapter 4? What happens in that chapter? Go ahead, you can say it if you know it. Who kills whom? Right, Cain kills Abel. Cain is of the line of the serpent. He is, a seed, he is one of the people in the line of the serpent. So he tries to kill Abel. And he does kill Abel. The godly, the godly child. The one who offered an, an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. Now, now that didn't end the godly line because God, gave birth, you know, God allowed Eve to give birth to Seth. But then you see it again with Ishmael and Isaac. That tension that was in that family when Isaac was born and Ishmael was sort of like you know, kind of persecuting Isaac. And then, you know, Sarah has to say, we need to get Ishmael out of the house. So Abraham sends Ishmael away. We see it when Esau tries to kill Jacob. 
We see it when Pharaoh tried to kill all of the Hebrew babies in the beginning of Exodus. He tried to wipe out the people of God through destroying all of the male children two years old and younger. We see it with Saul hunting David down. David is the great king. If David dies, there's no, there's no Messiah. Saul is hunting David down. And remember how, how that was described. It said God sent a, a tormenting spirit into Saul so that Saul you know, sort of irrationally almost hunted David down. We see it at the very beginning of the New Testament when the wise men come to Herod and give him news that we saw the sign in heaven that there's going to be a great child. What does Herod do? He goes and tries to kill all the babies. <laughs> it's like, child? I don't, that child is going to be king. I don't want anybody uh, you know, competing with me as king over Israel. Let's kill all the children again. Satan has tried time and time again to kill the Savior. That's why John here sees this dragon standing before this woman as she's about ready to give birth, waiting to devour her child. This is the child. This is the promised child. If he can kill the promised child, then it's over. Satan wins. And we see this, right? All throughout the history of even Jesus' life. Satan tries to kill Jesus right after he's born. When he's born, Herod tries to kill all the children. Satan tried to kill Jesus during his earthly ministry. As we've been going through the Gospel of John, how many times have the Pharisees tried to arrest Jesus and have him killed? It seems like it's almost a daily event, right? It's like, oh, Jesus is here. We need to arrest him. And then what do we see? No one's able to lay a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Jesus is protected by God. All of these attempts by Satan to, de to destroy the people of God, to destroy the Messiah, have failed. But what we see here in the first four verses here of chapter 12 is sort of the entire panoply of redemptive history throughout the Old Testament. The people of God bringing forth the seed of the Messiah, the, the dragon warring against the people of God, and waiting to kill the Messiah, and that's where we are. That's the end of the Old Testament. But now finally, look now at verses 5-6. through six. Let us look at the child. So we've seen the woman, the people of God. We've seen the dragon, Satan. Now let's look at the child in verse 5. And now this woman, she brings forth a man-child who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. So again, the child is Jesus, right. The child is Jesus. So the woman, Israel, the people of God, brings forth a man-child, Jesus. This is the long-awaited Messiah, the seed of the woman, finally here. Right? One of my favorite verses, it's not, it's, it's not like it's a life verse type of thing, but I just like it because Galatians 4 says, in the fullness of time, Christ was born of woman born under the law. This means that now the time is ripe, right? This woman has been carrying this child for thousands of years. She gives birth. And now is the time the child is here, the long-awaited Messiah. All of the Old Testament was waiting for this very moment in time. Now note that this man-child is one who will rule all nations with a rod of iron. Now what does this sound like? Well, it kind of sounds a little bit like Psalm 2, right? We looked at Psalm 2 last time, but Psalm 2, that great messianic psalm that talks about God and His kingdom and His anointed. And in Psalm 2, verses 6 through 9, we see the psalmist say, Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. So God is saying, I have set my king, my son, on the holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me. Thou art my son. This day I have begotten thee. So Jesus is born and he is the king. And he says, ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Verse 9, thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. So this child who was born who is set upon God's holy hill in Zion, who is God's Son, His only begotten Son, has this rod of iron, and He will use that rod of iron 
to do what, with what you use a rod of iron to do, right? A rod of iron is used to crush things. And he crushes all of the opposition, crumbles them to dust, and dashes them to pieces. And we saw it again uh, this morning in Isaiah chapter 9 when we looked at Isaiah 9 talking about the light. But here in verses 6 and 7, we see this great promise of this child who is born who will be the king. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So Jesus is the true Son of David, the one who is to be the great King. Uh, the one of whom Paul says at the end of Philippians chapter 2, that great uh, passage there talking about the humility and exaltation of Jesus, where then after His humiliation, where He is obedient to the death, even the death on the cross, then we see then God hath highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of the things in heaven and the things in the earth and the things under the earth. That's everything. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here is the son, the child, the one who is to be the king, the one who will rule with a rod of iron, the one who will rule the nations, as we see here in Revelation 12, with that iron rod. But what we see here in the last half of verse 5 is this very kind of brief description of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? This is about as brief a description of Jesus' life and ministry as you'll ever see at the end of verse 5. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. <laughs> so the child is born, and then the child's caught up to God and his throne. So immediately, so before the, before the dragon can you know, lick his lips while he's sitting there licking his chops, waiting for the child to be born, the child is born, and then poof, he's up into heaven. And the dragon's like, what, what, what happened? <laughs> I blinked, and all of a sudden the child is gone. What's going on here? Now again, this idea of caught up is a reference to Jesus' ascension. But here he is caught up to his, <clears throat> sorry, caught up to his throne, which says something that our dispensational brothers and sisters fail to notice. See, because when Jesus ascended, into heaven, right? He ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He received His throne. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's the place of highest honor. He is reigning and ruling now. He is king now. Our dispensational brothers and sisters will say that Jesus doesn't reign. He doesn't become king until His return when He inaugurates the millennial kingdom. We say, no, Jesus is reigning right now. He's in heaven. He's been caught up to his throne. He is there now reigning and ruling. But as I just mentioned a moment ago, another thing we see with this very kind of terse description of Jesus' life is that the dragon is not able to destroy the child. He's there waiting and all of a sudden the child is gone. And we made mention of this before, but again, think about all the ways in the ministry and life of Jesus how how many times Satan tried to tempt Jesus, kill Jesus, how he influenced people to kill Jesus, and then at the very final end, his mission has been derailed. You know, again, you know, referring back to our study through the Gospel of John, nothing could stop Jesus from his mission. They tried to arrest him, but they couldn't lay hands on him because his hour had not yet come until the time of his death. Now you're thinking, well, Satan was victorious in the end, right? He, they got Jesus to die. No, because everything Satan has been trying to do throughout the entire ministry of Jesus is to keep him from going to the cross, right? If he could tempt Jesus, when he tempted him, what did he try to tempt him with in the wilderness with those three temptations? Well, he, tempted, he was trying to tempt Jesus to take the kingdom without going to the cross. It's like, bow down before me. 
I will give you the kingdoms. They're currently under my influence and authority. I will give you the kingdoms if you just bow down to me. Look, you don't have to go to the cross. The cross is painful. Why would you want to do that? Just bow down and I'll give them to you. And Jesus is like, no, 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 they're already mine. You can't give me what's mine and, and I'm not going to bow down to you anyway. Sorry. No, everything Satan has been trying to do is to keep Jesus from the cross, which is why if they could have killed him and arrested him before the cross, Satan would have been victorious. But that's why no one could lay a hand on Jesus because his hour had not yet come. So now here, the plans to devour the man-child having failed, the dragon's next best thing to do is to now persecute the woman in verse 6. Where we see, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and sixty days. So now the woman, the people of God, the church, Israel, however you want to describe her, she flees into the wilderness. And the only reason she would flee into the wilderness is because she is being chased. Right? You don't flee unless you're being chased. She's been chased into the wilderness. The dragon chases the woman into the wilderness in order to hunt her down, in order to kill her. Now again, in the Old Testament, in the Bible, really, the wilderness often represents a place of testing and a place of trial for the people of God. Where did Israel wander for 40 years between Egypt and the Promised Land? In the wilderness, right? Where was Jesus tempted of Satan? In the wilderness, right? The wilderness is a place of trial and testing, but it is also representative of God's place of provision. Right? Think of Elijah after Mount Carmel when he defeats the prophets of Baal and then Jezebel is after him. He runs into the wilderness. And what happens when he's in the wilderness? Well, God feeds him right with the birds of the air. He brings him food and and God has a nice little heart-to-heart with Elijah there in the cave. Uh, even Jesus, when He was in the wilderness, the angels provided for Him. When Israel was wandering through the wilderness, God provided for them manna and water and all these things. So the wilderness is the place of trial and tempting, but it's also the place of God's provision and protection. And that's what we see here, right? The woman flees into the wilderness and we see that she has a place prepared for her of God, that there she should be fed. So even though she's on the run from the dragon, she's safe, she's secure, she's protected and provided for by God. Now notice how long the length of the woman's trials in the wilderness are. How long is she in the wilderness for? Yeah, 1,260 days. Now, have we seen this number before? (laughs) Yes, we saw this number many times before, right? It's either described as 1,260 days. It is described as either 42 months or sometimes you'll see it as times, time, and half a time. It's three and a half years. It's that symbolic three and a half year period of time that marks off the church age or this present evil age. So it is during this period of time that the church will face trials and tribulation but will also be preserved and provided for by God. So now here, as we conclude, we need to be students of history, but not facts and dates of world history, but with a broad sort of spiritual scope of redemptive history. Because there is a war going on. There is a battle that is present. And it's unlike anything we've ever seen or experienced before. It is spiritual warfare in which our chief adversary, this fiery red dragon, Satan himself, wages war on us. He wages war with his seven heads and his ten horns. So Satan is waging war against the people of God with all that he's got in his arsenal. Every amount of influence through the evil world system, through his demonic control over world systems and governments. Yet through it all, God has a place for us to weather the storm, right? The church is preserved and protected. If you remember back in chapter 11, When John is told to measure the temple, we see that the temple grounds itself are protected, but the outer courts are under siege. So we are this sort of this almost feels like a contradictory thing. We're both protected and under siege at the same time. 
God protects us during this age, even though the church is beset by trials and tribulations. And our response basically is this. For now, we exist in the wilderness. We are in the wilderness. Maybe a better way to say it is we are sort of like in a type of Babylonian exile, if you will. We are not home, right? We are on our way home. We are on our way to a better place, the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. But until then, we need to keep in mind that this world is not our home, that we are strangers in a strange land, and like Abraham, we need to look for a better city, one whose maker is God, as we see in Hebrews chapter 11, right? Abraham had faith that he knew that even though he was a sojourner in the land that was given to him, he knew that God was his, his rock and his refuge and his salvation.